Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your works I have not found your works complete in, my, in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Sir William Ramsey said of the ancient city of Sardis that nowhere was there a greater example of the melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay. It's a stunning statement. When Jean and I travel, we tend to like to go on back roads through small towns and as we go through one small town after another here in our country, different places around the country, it is remarkable to see the kind of thing that Ramsey describes here of Sardis. Town after town that, that seems like its peak was maybe 30 or 40 or 50 years ago and now is in a place where the bulk of the business or the, the, the residences have fallen into a state of tattered disrepair and you just have the sense that life in this town was once very different than it is now. And it's not a hopeful picture. That's the kind of thing that Ramsey is saying of Sardis. Hard to find a greater example in the ancient world of melan the melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay. The ancient city was constructed on a narrow plateau that jutted out like a spur from the long ridge of Mount Tumolus in Lydia. It was some 1,500 feet above the Hermas River Valley and Plain that was below it. Not only was it a beautiful city, but it was also naturally fortified against invasion in that the only entrance was along the ridge of the mountain onto that plateau. And the sides of the plateau were steep and smooth and more like caked and crumbly mud than like rock. Sardis was once rich and prosperous, filled with magnificence and luxury. Prospectors found gold in the Pactolus River, which also flowed through the valley below. And if you're familiar with the mythology, the myth of uh, Midas... This is the river 
And it's believed that uh, the richness of Sardis is somehow the blessing, tied to the blessing of Midas being in that area. In time, the city outgrew the plateau and expanded down into the valley below. The most notorious of the Sardian kings was the legendary Croesus. His name is still synonymous with wealth today. And he's the one that's perceived to have inherited the gold and, uh, and finery from Midas. His rule brought Sardis to its zenith during the 6th century B.C., and he was still in power when they were first defeated. He foolishly mobilized his army to attack Cyrus of Persia. Not a good idea. That was in 549 B.C. And Sardis was soundly defeated in that battle. They retreated to the higher city, which Croesus thought was impregnable. But Cyrus initiated a siege, and after 14 days, he then offered a reward to anyone who could find an entry into Sardis. And an observant soldier noticed that one of the Sardians had, act, had accidentally dropped his helmet from the city wall, and he climbed down through an opening in the wall to get it. And that's how they first realized that the steep slope must actually be scalable. So that night, that soldier led a party of Persian troops up that cliff by a fault in the rock, and when they reached the top and they found the battlements of Sardis completely unguarded. The Sardians had thought themselves too safe to need a guard at night, and so Sardis fell. The Sardians made a few measly attempts at rebellion in the years that followed, but any heroic efforts were preempted by the policies that Cyrus introduced there in that city. For instance, he forbade any Sardian to possess a weapon, so they were not armed for war. He ordered them to wear tunics and buskins, which are kind of like actor's boots, instead of sandals, so they were not dressed for war. He ordered them to teach their sons how to play the lyre, to teach them song and dance and retail trading so they were not fit for war. And Sardis, which had already been flabby, the last vestige of spirit was banished from them by these policies of Cyrus, and they became a city of just degeneration. Sardis vanished from history under Persian rule for nearly two centuries. When Alexander and the Greeks rose to power, Sardis surrendered to them. But the city was then defeated again in 218 B.C., long after Alexander's death, when Antiochus III was pursuing a fleeing army who, who sought refuge there in Sardis. And I'll spare you the details, but on this occasion, the city was taken in exactly the same way as it had been taken before. A night invasion at the site of an unguarded battlement. Antiochus had learned from Sardian history, but evidently the Sardians themselves had not. An absolute embarrassment. 
We could go on for a while. There's even more interesting history of Sardis, but we won't need to survey all of that this morning. I think from what we've learned here, we can get a good backdrop, a good setup to understand and appreciate what was being said to this city and what it was Jesus wanted them to do. What we do need to know is that the latter part, in the latter part of the first century A.D., the city was wealthy again. But they were still soft and lazy. And as for the church in Sardis, they weren't much different than their surroundings. They had taken on the likeness of their environment. We'll say more about that in just a few minutes. But first, let's just get started into the text and hear what Jesus has to say to them. We'll go according to the outline we've been using for each of these seven letters. This time, however, it's a little mixed up, and you could hear that in the reading, going back and forth between assessment and assignment. So we have the ascription in the first half of verse 1, and then we have the assessment in in Sardis in the second half of verse 1, the second half of verse 2, and verse 4. And if you're going to read this letter, you'll see that, that Jesus does the assessment going right at the heart of the matter, right from the start. And then he adds some encouraging words later. But I think the, the intermixing and the disordering of this letter is what gives us a sense of the importance of what's being addressed here. So the assessment then comes in the second half of one, the second half of two, and four. The assignment is in the first half of verse two, and then again in verse three. And finally, the assurance is in verses 5 and 6. So that's the outline we'll follow this morning. So let's get into the ascription. And we're going to take a few minutes here this morning because we've been putting off uh, some of our, our search. It starts to an angel at the church at Sardis. And we haven't really talked about these angels of the churches yet. It's a curious description. And I've said that we would take these in time, in, in, you know, as they come up in the text. And here... It appears to be a good time to talk about this ministry of the angels. The word behind angel here is a familiar one to us. It's the Greek angelos. It's a word that means messenger. And from that, many have concluded that the most reasonable, perhaps the most believable reference would be to the pastors of these churches, to the messenger of the church at Sardis, for instance. Now, I personally really like the idea of Jesus calling the pastors of churches angels. That's, I think that's a, that's a fitting thing. I, I appreciate it. The problem is this word isn't used with that meaning anywhere else in Scripture. So it's unlikely that that's what's being talked about. <laughs> All right, let's keep comments to a minimum here. <laughs> Others suggest that messenger is actually the best translation, that it might refer to actual messengers, the the messenger who carried this letter from John on the island of Patmos to the seven churches that were on the continent. The problem here is that in the rest of the 67 uses of this word in Revelation, it always refers to heavenly beings. So that seems unlikely that in these cases it's referring to just a human being with that kind of descriptor. So it seems best, really, to understand each of these messengers to be an angel. 
An angel assigned by God to each of the churches. But we need to take a moment with that in order to understand it and appreciate it. We know, for instance, that children have angels. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, Jesus makes mention that their angels are always before the Father in heaven. Hebrews 1, 14 also seems to underscore that possibility that, that children have angels. We also know that there are angels over different nations. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, again in verse 20. Daniel 12, verse 1, we, we see that there are angels given charge over nations. But that leaves us with the question here of why would God tell an angel to tell John to tell another angel what Jesus had to say to the churches? Because if we plug in chapter 1, verse 1, that's what we have. God communicating to Jesus to tell an angel to tell John what's in this letter. And in these seven letters of chapter 2 and 3, John tells another angel to tell the church what they need to hear. That seems a little odd. But I believe the answer is that in some way which is not entirely clear, each angel seems to represent its church as something like its heavenly counterpart. That may sound odd, especially since there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. It might also seem strange because this one mediator, the Lord Jesus himself, is our great high priest who always lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7, 25. So why would we need a representative angel in heaven, each of us churches? Well, there's evidence elsewhere in Revelation of angels being identified with Christians in somewhat unusual ways, ways we wouldn't expect. They have more of a ministry to us than we might believe. In fact, that's how they're introduced in the book of Hebrews. They're ministering spirits sent to address the needs that God appoints for them with regard to the work of His body. Here in Revelation, over in chapter 19, John was so impressed with the message of one angel that the text says he fell down at his feet to worship him, but the angel said to John, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, don't worship me. An angel himself putting himself in the place of keeping John straight on who he worships and on the fact that this angelic being must have been glorious enough that John mistook him for a manifestation of God himself. But the angel helped keep him straight. The very same final words were spoken again by an angel in chapter 22, verse 9. Worship God. Even more unique, though, in terms of the ministry of angels among the body of believers comes in chapter 8. At the opening of the seventh seal, John wrote in chapter 8, verse 2, I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. 
I'm guessing most of us don't picture our prayers being met at a golden altar before the throne of God by an incense-burning angel who delivers them, right? And yet that's what John is seeing here in chapter 8. I think angels minister to us in ways that we don't realize, in ways that we're unaware of. And we freely admit that there is not enough explicit information in Scripture to develop a full-blown theology of angels, but we do know something of their roles from texts like this. And we have to remember that and keep that in mind. And I believe all this flows together to suggest that the angels of Revelation 2 and 3 are actually angels. That there might quite possibly be an angel of the Grace Church of DuPage in the presence of God, minding the things that concern us. The problem is that when we start thinking that way, we do the same thing John did in chapter 19. We have the same problem he did. Our temptation is to be drawn more toward the angel than toward the God he represents. That angel who spoke to John spoke the truth. Listen, man, don't worship me. I'm a created being just like you are. Yeah, my, man, my, my appearance is different, but I, I, I look like this because I live in the presence of God. You'll be above me someday. That's what the Psalms say, right? Psalm 16. For a little while we're made lower than the angels, but we'll be crowned with glory and honor. So I think there are angels before the throne of God representing these seven churches Heavenly beings so closely associated with these churches that they are their representatives in heaven and that they even share accountability with them for their victories, for their struggles. So the angel is being addressed because the angel is in closest touch with what's going on there, but all of it is under the headship of Christ. And it's Jesus himself who's giving the instruction here. No mistake of who's in charge. Back to the text then. And to the angel in the church in Sardis, write, continuing on in verse 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We know that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. One of the reasons we're taking time this morning to look into that description. And I told you as we pass through chapter 1, verse 4, that we talk later about these seven spirits of God and what they represent. This description was there in chapter 1, verse 4. It comes up here, comes up again in chapter 4, verse 5 with some additional detail, and then again in chapter 5, verse 6. So four times in the first five chapters of Revelation, and that's all. But what does this mean, the seven spirits of God? Personally, I have gone back and forth on whether we should understand this as speaking of one of the high orders of angels surrounding the throne of God. One of the places where we would go to suggest that it's not the Holy Spirit is chapter 8, verse 2 that we just read. The seven trumpets were given to the seven angels. Uh, the seven spirits before the throne. It, it seems an odd thing that it was the Holy Spirit who was sounding the trumpet in each of these. So, that's a, that's a genuine challenge, right? So one, one possibility is that it's a high order of angels. A second is that it's a reference to the fullness of the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
I believe I'm landing on the latter one. That it's these seven spirits of God are a reference to the fullness of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The primary reason I believe that is due to the fact of right there in chapter 1 as this letter is getting started. The seven spirits who are before the throne mentioned in 1-4 are put in between a reference to the Son, namely Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth in verse 5, and also the reference to the Father there in verse 4, him who is and who was and who is to come, making this a Trinitarian reference right at the beginning of the letter. That and several other contextual pieces just make me favor that, and I believe that that's probably what's being referred to here, although I don't think it's worthy of an argument to go back and forth on which of those two, a high order of angels or an image of the Holy Spirit, which one is definitely meant. Some additional thoughts, though, on the one I've chosen, the fact that it seems to be a representative of the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits of God are grouped with seven torches of fire that were burning before the throne of God in chapter 4, verse 5 of Revelation. And that seems to draw from a pretty familiar image back in Zechariah 4 where a lampstand of gold with seven lamps on it is identified as the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Zechariah 4 verse 10, a good image of the Holy Spirit and the work that He does. And that is also the passage where the familiar word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel in verse 6 saying, not by might nor by power but by my Spirit says the Lord. So anchoring those images to the Holy Spirit is the thing that makes me favor this, this interpretation. But it was time to just look into that a little bit. I recognize that's a little teachy for those of you who are interested in it. Praise God. For those of you who aren't really looking at the text in that way, you can wake up again now and we're going to move on, all right? Bottom line, Jesus introduces himself here to Sardis in verse 1 as essentially the one who has all the resources that they could ever need, spiritually speaking. He has all the resources they could need. He's the one who holds the angels in his hand, and he's the one who has the sevenfold Spirit of God in his presence in, at his command. But beyond that, moving into the assessment... He knows them completely. Second half of verse 1. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. Nothing there, nothing here. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. And what he sees in them is that their reputation is exactly the opposite of reality. That's a hard thing to hear. What you're known as being is not what you are, Jesus is saying to Sardis. Now in verse 4, there are still a few there who have not soiled their garments. They've not compromised with the world or stopped short of faithful witness in this lethargic culture. But the main group in Sardis was right there. They were ineffective and unfruitful, to borrow the language of 2 Peter 1. They were as good as dead, regardless of what others or what they themselves 
thought they were. That's what Jesus says right here at the close of verse 1. Right from the start, I know your works, Jesus said. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That is a chilling statement to hear. Some feel like the the harshest, firmest word comes to the modern-day church through the letter to Laodicea that we haven't looked at yet, being lukewarm in your faith. I can't get past Sardis. This one to me is a chilling word of rebuke from Jesus. Just like their city, they, they, weren't, once, they weren't what they once were. They had something going in the past, but they didn't amount to much in the present. What an awful thing for a church to hear. It plays on our worst fears. You're spiritual pretenders is what Jesus is saying. You don't finish anything. That's the meaning of the second half of verse 2. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You start well enough, but you don't finish. That's what Jesus is saying. You're lazy. You stop in the middle. You've been spoon-fed for too long, and you've grown weak. You've forgotten how to work. I came here 17 years ago from a church that's known around the world. I used to pray we weren't Sardis. Our church here has a reputation. Bible exposition, pure doctrine, training, sending, Is it true? Or are we pretending? We need to ask the question. No implicit scolding going on here at all. We just need to ask the question. Are we lazy, living off the past? God help us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just a word of reassurance. I don't see that when I look at Grace Church of DuPage. I do think the Lord is at work among us. I think he's at work among us in some unique ways, but I also know that that's precisely the time when we can start feeling good about ourselves and start letting things slip. Start just being a little lax in our worship and in our preparation for being together on Sundays, a little lacking in prayer for the deepening of the fellowship of the body and the work of the gospel among us, a little cool toward proclaiming the gospel in our day, finding the ways to say it that penetrate hearts and match the culture that we live in. We need to be asking the question, even if we don't necessarily see the signs, or even if we resonate with different ones of the churches, we should be asking ourselves each time we hear that statement, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's like, Lord, give us ears to hear.
So what's Jesus' word to Sardis? We'll move into the assignment. His word to Sardis is just that. Wake up. Wake up. Literally, be watchful. Be, pay attention. Be cautious. The very thing they should learn from Sardian history, to be cautious. The same slackness that stained their political and military history was now staining their church. So the church had become like the world. That was its own issue, but put all this together and it seems like the main problem at the church in Sardis, and several who write on this church put it this way, the main problem is that they just wanted to fly under the radar. They wanted to blend in, not to stand out. They wanted to keep a low profile, not make waves. Let's just go along and get along. Outreach activities, spiritual growth initiatives, things of that sort started up but never run, ran full cycle. Whether from lack of support or lack of stamina or, or maybe just lack of genuine interest, they all petered out over time. And Jesus was saying, come on, man. Get it going. Wake up. Finish something, huh? Get at it. So we have to ask the question, how are they supposed to do that? That's an important one for us to ask in this letter. How are they sp supposed to do that? Well, just as Jesus' greeting here in verse 1 sounds much like his greeting to Ephesus back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, this assignment here in 2 and 3 sounds much like theirs. Ephesus' charge, their assignment back in chapter 2, verse 5. To Ephesus he wrote, remember, repent, return. Do you remember that? We made much of it at the time. Here it's remember, return, repent. Very similar message in verse 3. Remember that message that changed your life. Keep it and go after your work as a church. Go after it. Highest priority. Being salt and light in this world. Carrying the gospel message. You have all you need, Jesus is saying. Just put it to use. Repent of all this sloth and get on with the work of the ministry. Verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. <laughs> the Sardians knew what this was like from experience, didn't they? Coming like a thief in the night. As to that description, several times in Scripture, Jesus coming like a thief refers to the unexpected hour of his return. Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, even right here in Revelation over in chapter 16, coming like a thief is a reference to the unexpected hour of his return. As for the righteous, we long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's how the book finishes. But for the unrepentant, that marks the arrival of judgment. 
Here, it's probably not referring to Jesus' ultimate coming. Primarily, it's because it's stated as a conditional. If you will not wake up, I will come. So this time, it's probably not referring to that time, but I think it's intentionally cast in that language. We can know two things here. First, this certainly foreshadows his final coming in judgment because it uses that language. And I think Jesus is calling that to mind. I'm going to come at you, Sardis. This isn't my final coming, but it's going to look like it. Secondly, it's not for a picnic that he threatens to come here. Look how it finishes. I will come against you. This is Jesus coming in judgment because of what's going on in the church there in Sardis. <laughs> when my father used to say, don't make me come in there, I was pretty sure I didn't want him to show up. Same here. Again, this threat is not unlike Ephesus. Not at all unlike Ephesus. Sardis is virtually dead already. That's their assessment. And if Jesus has to come to them, almost certainly they will be. Almost certainly he'll be coming in judgment. That moves us on to the assurance. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers here is certainly the one who remembers and repents and returns to a vibrant witness and walk with the Lord. But there's more here that we need to press on a little bit and unpack. They will be clothed in white garments, verse 5, just like those in Sardis who had not soiled their garments, verse 4. And those folk who had not soiled their garments were described with a poignant word in this book. A word that is rich in its meaning wherever it appears, but it's particularly meaningful in Revelation. It's the word worthy. Those who had not soiled their garments were described as worthy. There are a few in Sardis, verse 4, who resisted the allure of the world, who resisted idolatry and complacency and all the rest, and they will walk with Jesus in white, for they are worthy. So just like those who had never soiled their garments, these ones who had, these ones who had been drawn into the culture, but would remember that, return to the teaching and repent, they're going to receive the same lesson. The conquerors were going to receive the same thing as those which never fell. Isn't that God's grace? So what do these white garments mean? It's a good question. We just look over to chapter 7. John wrote there in verses 13 and 14. 
Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the worthy ones. The way this is stated, it sounds like they were martyrs in this season. And because they remain faithful, their garments are washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. They're worthy then, not in and of themselves. They're worthy ultimately because of the blood of the Lamb. He has cleansed them. He has clothed them in His righteousness. He who Himself was proven worthy, chapter 5, verse 5, because He was a conqueror. He is now proving them worthy as well. And as they endure by His enabling, as they remain faithful through trial and through suffering in this life, when they finally enter His presence, He'll identify them as conquerors, ones who overcame. And He will grant them a white garment. And so they will walk with Him. That's fellowship with the true and living God. That's part of what a white garment represents. It's purity, it's cleansing, it's new life, and it's fellowship with God. He will never blot their name out of the book of life, verse 5. Not that he would blot anyone else's out either. This is just an image of surety, an image of security, an image of assurance. He will confess their names before his Father and before his angels. So essentially, Jesus is saying, confess my name there in Sardis. Stand up and confess my name there in Sardis, and I will confess your name in heaven. Confess my name in Warrenville, and I'll confess your name in heaven. It's a good promise, isn't it? That's a good promise to hear. Stand up, wake up, and declare my name, and I'll be doing that in heaven with your name. What do we make of all this today? Oh, friends, first note, we have a name. <laughs> we have a name. Jesus knows our name. Our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If we've trusted in Christ as Savior. If we have confessed Him as Savior and Lord, we claim a name. This says we're alive. It says we have an identity. We're Christians. We're, we're Christ ones. Identified with Him. Part of the family. Seat at the table. At the wedding celebration of the Lamb. We bear the name that is above every name. The name before which every knee and every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth should bow and confess. That's the name we're associated with. 
Do your works match that name? Or do we take the name in vain? That's how it works, I think. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's what it means. Don't, don't claim to belong to Him and then act differently. We tend to think of it as just using the wrong language, the wrong expletive. That's, that's not it. It's claiming one thing and being another. Do your works match that name? Are you alive? Are you worthy? Or do you need to hear Jesus' call to Sardis? Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Half-hearted devotion doesn't cut it. Weekend Christianity won't do it. Lazy, slow, unfinished works of faith are stained garments. They have no place in heaven. They're not white. Repent, Jesus is saying, and get back to work. The time is short. War against the incessant pull of this world to press on and press on toward purity. Press on toward faithful service we've been called and equipped to pursue. To borrow the language of Peter again, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Back to Paul in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Don't leave the battlements of your life unguarded so that you're vulnerable to the attack of every enemy and to the attacks of the enemy who can make you soft and lazy and spiritually domesticated in a very brief time. So how do we set a guard? How do we set a guard on the battlements of our lives so that we're not routinely taken in the same embarrassing way by not standing guard? Let me make a few suggestions as we draw to a close this morning. Some of you may say, I struggle with lust. But I don't really need to set a guard on my computer. Friend, set the guard. Some may say, I struggle sometimes in telling the pure truth. I shade and shape the truth to my own advantage. But I don't really need to set a guard over my mind by committing Ephesians 4 to memory. That's a really long chapter. Friend, set the guard. Some may say, I struggle with outbursts of anger, with bitterness, with criticism of others. But I don't really need to set a guard over my tongue by studying James 3. Friend, set the guard. Some say, I, I struggle with gluttony. But I don't really need to set a guard over what I eat or pray through my diet. Friend, set the guard.
Some say, I know I've made foolish decision after foolish decision. But I don't really need to set a guard over my will. I don't want to have to trouble others for advice and input and direction all the time. Set the guard. Some say I'm wandering kind of aimlessly in my spiritual life, but I don't need to set a guard over my involvements, and I don't really want to pursue spending more time with the body of Christ. Friend, set the guard. Some say I'm not really excited about the gospel. Not enough to share it as freely as some do. And I don't really need to set a guard over my heart. I don't want to spend more time meditating on the cross and praying for opportunities to share it. Can you say it with me this time? Set the guard. Set the guard. What an amazing thing it is to know that we serve a risen Savior who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He has everything we need to remember what we've received and heard, to keep it, and to repent. Everything we need, He's given to us. He has all that we require in order to strengthen what remains of our flabby faith and tighten it up for His glory. He has everything we need, everything we require to wash clean our soiled and stained garments so that they too may be made white in the blood of the Lamb. He has all that we need to keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that exactly how Sardis would have been described? That language, I've referred to it twice already, in this message, comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. It comes from a passage that sounds like it could have been the doctor's prescription for just what ailed Sardis. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 11. You know what's interesting? From the greeting in 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Peter's flock lived in the same region as Sardis. Right there in Asia. I want us to read this passage together. This is going to be the conclusion of the message. I'll pray as soon as we're done reading. But I want us to read it together. Because I think what we read right here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-11 through 11, is precisely what we need to hear from the Word of God itself with regard to the challenge that comes to us through this church at Sardis. This is where we belong. You know what? Could you stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read it together? And let's just read it from the screen. You're welcome to read it from the page, but when our heads are up, our voices blend better. Let's read the Word of God. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, 
so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Please be seated. And as I pray, musicians can return to the platform and servers to the front to serve communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these sobering words to Sardis. Even if as we look around, Father, we wouldn't perceive this to be the primary message to this body, we also recognize that as soon as we start making that statement, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to trusting in that which has occurred here in the past and not pressing on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus right now here in our present day. So, Lord, meet us in our need, I pray. Keep your promises to your people. Help us to call out to you just like Peter is charging his people to call out to you, to lay hold of the resources that are available in the Lord Jesus Christ through the witness and power of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of your unfailing word. Father, give us in this day a hunger and a thirst after godliness, that we would not be ineffective and unfruitful, but that we would rejoice in the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, and that we would proclaim that in our world and rejoice in it right here in our fellowship. Father, do your work for your glory among us this day, I pray. And we ask that you would strengthen us now for this week ahead by this remembrance of the body and blood of the Lord. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.